Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. A remembering of something that we used to know is kind of a smaller and easier step than trying to think up a whole new thing that's going to save us or heal us or whatever. So I think that question of how to heal is partly a remembering, a reconnecting rather than anything else. Hey, thanks for listening. I notice these moments sometimes in my own life where I avoid the thing that I'm intuitively sensing I need to do. And it's through fear or uncertainty about what might happen if that I do that thing. And I don't even want to sit with the thought for too long. So I quickly distract myself with my phone or I go and eat something or watch TV or just jump on my laptop. But what I notice is that in those moments where I'm able to sit with that for a little bit and allow allow the situation to reveal itself to me, something beautiful usually happens and something new. And even though I was afraid and even though it is uncertain, it's usually really good. This is one of the things that I talk about this week with the guest in this episode. The conversation is with Sita Beckwith, who looks after communications at Ceres. And we actually sat down at Ceres and had a beautiful chat about a whole range of things that I hope you enjoy listening to. I'm Adam Murray, and thanks for joining me as I talk with Cedar Beckwith on subtly disrupting our relationship with Earth. Cedar, great to be sitting with you and chatting with you. Do you mind staying by just explaining where you've chosen for our conversation and why you've chosen this place? Sure. We're sitting at, it's called the Namalata Willem, which is our Indigenous teaching space at Ceres. It's just my favourite place to sit. Often it's got hundreds of school kids getting involved yeah. with learning and whatever so it's not often this quiet and peaceful but I just love that it's surrounded by trees and the sandy floor and feels a little bit hidden away yeah, yeah. and I chose series for our meeting because I spend so much of my time here yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. maybe we might talk a little bit start by just talking a bit about series for people sure. that might not have come across it as well but just before we do there's a lot happening here today and it is quite secluded here and interesting what you were saying about this space just before we started recording as well, how it was quite barren 30 years ago even, and now it's, um, yeah, quite luscious. And I can see a fire pit here as well. Is this mm. stuff that happens here at night? Uh, <laughs> the fire pit is for ceremony, so we've had a lot of smoking ceremonies here. Yeah. But I suspect it's used in the evenings by others. <laughs> and we're actually sitting right next to a, it's called Spirit of the Earth Medicine Society, just behind this here. They have a sweat lodge just hidden oh, on right. the side there. Yeah. So there's a lot of fire building that goes on around this area. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But series, if you want to yeah. hear a little bit about series. So... The land that we're on is the land of the Wurundjeri people. And then when the first white people arrived, they decided to dig a giant hole here. So they quarried a lot of bluestone from this site and other ones along the north of Melbourne, along the creek. Yep. So a lot of the bluestone alleyways and buildings that you see in Melbourne would have come from here and places like this. Yeah. So that quarry obviously made a giant hole. And then they thought, we need somewhere to put all of our rubbish. And so they <laughs> filled the hole with rubbish. Yeah. So mostly construction waste and household waste. And that went on for decades until about the 19, late 1960s it was capped. Right. And then it became, it was an asphalt hot mix plant. It had a piggery. It was just very industrial around this area. The hot creek was just a drain, essentially. And all the factories all along the other side of the creek, very industrial area. And then in the... Early 1980s, there was a group of people doing a work for the Dole scheme and they wanted some land to grow some veggies and they wanted to create work. So they're trying to look for alternative employment things for themselves. Yeah. So they approached the council and said, can we have this land? Which, if you can imagine, there was not a tree in sight, big power lines overhead, just weeds. And so council said, sure, you know, yeah. <laughs> take the land. And so they started 
installed some veggie gardens, they started a recycling scheme and they were looking at alternative technology even back then. Then they looked around at the kids in the local area. The kids didn't really have a lot to do. They weren't going on excursions, very low socioeconomic area. And so they invited the kids to come and learn about what they were trying to create here. Mm. And that essentially started our education program, which is more or less what we're known for now. So currently, we're Victoria's largest deliverer of environmental education. We receive around 60,000 school visits a year. Mm. And we also run a collection of social enterprises these days with the idea of being financially self-sufficient ultimately. So we're 95% self-funded, which is really unusual for a non-profit organisation and something we're quite proud of. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's kind of series in a nutshell. There's heaps more to say, but... Yeah. It's such an amazing origin. I didn't actually know mm. that that's how it emerged. Mm. And yeah. without any, I guess, it feels like a very clear, like, strategic plan of here's where we want to be in 30 mm. years' time and just kind of mm-hmm. like here are the little things to start doing now and then it just kind of build upon that. It's interesting that you say that about there being a strong vision. Like I think there is a strong vision but I don't think people always agree on what that is because mm. I've read through a lot of the old documentation of series. Like My role here is currently narrative director, which sounds like a very lofty title, <laughs> but communications. And yeah. so I've gone through all these old files of notes and photographs and whatever and people argue like from the time we started until now about what the real vision of series is going to be. Mm. So I think maybe <laughs> there is some kind of strong vision at work there but I'm not quite clear what it is. I feel like maybe there's some other kind of thing that's maybe a shared, what I interpret it as, is there's a love for this land here that comes up and out of the land and through the people. And so I think there's a connection Mm. through love of place, connection to each other and place that kind of maybe is more important than the vision. Yeah. Just thinking out loud. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting can we explore this a bit more? Yeah. Because um, some of the work that I do is in helping organisations understand their values and their vision mm. and making sure that everyone's aligned with that and working towards the same goal. It seems like you're describing something, I mean, there's, there's some similarities there, but it's a little bit different in how it actually works. And I'm very curious about what's the metaphor of the, the organisational structure, if you like, of series that, and, and it's almost like a I don't know, I almost don't want to say it, but like an, an ecological element to it in the way people are interconnected and evolving and all holding a, a unique part of that, mm, something like that. Yeah. yeah. We've done a lot of work internally since I've been here, which has been almost 10 years, about what our vision, purpose, values, all of that yeah. is. And we had endless meetings with our senior management team probably about five years ago. We never really resolved it because we have this purpose statement that's part of our constitution as an organisation, which I'm going to get it wrong, but it's like we are a place for community-based learning and action that creates environmentally beneficial, socially just, economically satisfying, culturally enriching and spiritually nurturing ways of living together, which is like a, you know, that's a lot of adjectives right there. (laughs) And so as a communications person, I was often struggling with that. We do all these different things, like I mentioned, education, social enterprise. So there was nothing that was really tying it together. Mm. And our CEO, her name's Cinnamon Evans, she comes from a deep ecology background. Um, I don't know if this is relevant, but I feel like it is. And she sort of almost off the cuff one day, one of our other managers said to her, so what is series really here for? And she said, we're here to help people fall in love with the earth again. And since she said that, my job has been so much easier. For me, it was just like the perfect thing to say. She didn't even realise there was that um, Thich Nhat Hanh, that um, Buddhist teacher, had written a long statement to the UN about how we need to solve climate change and that we needed to, people need to wake up and fall in love with the earth again. Mm. And she didn't even know that, so it kind of came up and, and through her. And we've said it. And at first I was a bit, oh, we're already known as a hippie organisation. If we start talking about love, is that going to be really uncomfortable for people? But people really love that statement. Yeah. Um, it gives me goosebumps mm, hearing that too. Yeah. yeah. And so I don't know... In a way, we are a hierarchy. Like when I started at series, the structure was drawn in a circle, which I found really frustrating. I'm like, you can draw it in a circle, but that's not how it really is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so now we have a board of directors, we have a CEO, we have a senior management team, mm. other managers and casual staff. So it's very much like a hierarchical 
structure. Yeah. But for me, I don't know, like the difference is that it's quite loving and connected. Like I bring my whole self to work. Most people bring their whole self to work. There's not really that separation between work and other at series for most people. So, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, that's great. (laughs) Tying back to where we started and where we're sitting, like I'm a bit of a footy fan Mm. as well and it's actually said Doug Nichols. Nichols round, not Nicholson, Nichols round, mm. this two rounds, which is the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders focused round for the AFL. Mm. And I was just listening to the football last night and there was a, a pretty amazing welcome to country mm. in Sydney by one of the elders there. And what blew me away and kind of does blow me away, particularly recently when I've heard welcome to countries, is that I've been welcomed to mm. this country and I just... Mm. For me, like, that blows my mind. Particularly, I read, um, what's Bruce Pascoe's? Dark Emu. Yeah, Dark Emu recently. And just mm. just the light that that, I almost only needed to read the first page for my whole world to be shifted and not, almost not need to read the rest of the book. I'm like, mm. oh, wow, like, I've had this so wrong. Mm. And then through all that, to still be welcome to a place, it, oh, it's just like, how could I be welcome in this place, really? Mm. And to have the ability to, I guess, fall in love with the land in this place again is pretty special, pretty unique. Yeah. Do you know, have you heard of David Tacey? No. He writes a lot about spirituality in Australia and he was a, moved to Alice as a young, from Melbourne to Alice Springs as a young boy and then had this really amazing Aboriginal teacher and he was a Christian or his practice was based in Christianity. But then his real teaching was through this really generous Aboriginal man whose name I forget. But David Tacey says that what you were just talking about is a gift from Aboriginal people to white Australia that is so generous that we don't know how to accept it. Yeah. And that's actually what the issue is. Like He's written some really interesting uh, stuff around that, the gift that Australia is unable to accept. Yeah. I mean, that that probably ties into a little bit about why we kind of originally connected as well (laughs) and around spiritual ecology, which maybe we can start to get into, but what's stopping us from accepting it? Oh, that's a really good question. (laughs) I'm trying to think about why I find it difficult because I've had a similar experience to you. Um, Through series, we visit a community up in Arnhem Land and the first time I went up there, I was so nervous. Like, I really wanted to be accepted into the community and had all those ideas that I wouldn't be and probably rightly so from my perspective. I was to some degree aware of massacres and ill treatment. I'd done a bit of reading about it. So going into that community, I was like, they were gorgeous, so generous, connected me to country, shared their knowledge with me. And I've gone up a few times since and I find it difficult because I'm just trying to think about what that is in me. Maybe it's because I personally don't feel that generous. Maybe I don't feel wealthy, like I don't have a, a place. Maybe I don't have any real gift to offer back. Yeah, something in that. Like mm. I almost feel I need to protect what I have and mm. just reflecting on what you're saying there and I resonate with that. Like I don't feel at ease to give. It kind of speaks to the origins of this, how we came here mm. in any ways. It was yeah. about mm. taking. Yeah. And I think helping is always misguided, like... I try really hard not to have, you know, read a lot about white saviour complex. So when I went into that community, it's called Mapu in East Arnhem Land, I'm aware of that, you know, seeing poverty and wanting to step in and save people. Yeah. (laughs) It's a really uncomfortable subject matter, actually. But just going back to that thing that came to me just now, I don't feel like I have anything genuine to offer that's worth as much as what's being offered in return. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I went to the climate march yesterday and there's a lot of talking on the steps of Parliament House and then this young 16-year-old who's been sitting protesting on the steps of Parliament, she came out and the first thing she said was there can be no climate justice without justice for First Nations people. And I just love that that's now front and centre of the environmental movement. It really... It's the first time that it's felt real for me. I think the environmental movement, you know, I've been, you know, protesting about the environment since I was a kid, really, and it's always been about how we can save the earth, but it's not the earth that's need save, that needs saving, really. It's us. Yeah. 
Mm. So it's kind of an egotistical perspective, I think. How can we save the earth? <laughs> and so now this kind of shift in how we're talking about environmental justice and how it's linked with justice for First Nations people, justice for people with disabilities, justice for non-gender people, makes it a much more complex issue. So it's harder to just solve, mm. but it feels real and correct or something. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Given all those things that you've talked about and that sense of, like, what do I have to offer? Like, <laughs> what, what movements are you making? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So spiritual ecology is what we were talking about. And mm. before we met, I was reflecting about what that really is and what it means to me and what I'm trying to do with that theme in my life and at series. And I think for me, uh, the first time I heard the word spiritual ecology was a book was brought out that's an edited collection of essays from different faith and cultural leaders around the world talking about how there's no longer time for you to practice your spirituality somewhere else. We need that spirituality to be integrated into practical action for the earth at this time. And just even hearing those two words together, spiritual and ecology, for me, brought those two things together in a way that was just really simple. I was like, of course they need to be together. Mm. And since I first heard those words and have been reflecting on it, for me, it's something about where the inner and the outer meet, essentially. There's the inner practice and then there's the outer action. And where those two things intersect is really fertile. Even in permaculture, they say, you know, edges are fertile places where you've got two different ecosystems that meet up. There's more mm. biodiversity at that point than anywhere else. Yeah, right. Um, and there's this um, image from the Upanishads, which I'm not an expert on, but I just heard the image and then researched where it was from. It's a little story. There's two birds sitting on a branch, great friends, and one eats a berry and the other one, not eating, watches. And that's it. Like, there's lots written about this. But for some reason, the image recently in this exploration of spiritual ecology keeps coming to mind. And it's there's that outer action of the bird eating the berry. And then there's something important about the reflection or the witnessing, like that other bird has just an equal and important role and you need both the action and the reflection. Mm. So that, I don't know, there's so much in that really. And then I did a retreat in February, the first of these little spiritual ecology retreats through series and the first day I sat down in the little meditation hall in the Otways and there's a tiny little stained glass window right at the top and I looked up and there were two birds on the stained glass window, one eating a berry and the other one watching like in the stained glass window and I was like, that is like weird <laughs> and amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so over the four days there I was like, why? Like, you know, what is the message in this image that keeps coming to mind and now is right there? And I went off and sat in the forest one morning just before the end of the retreat and I was asking, what's the thing here for me? What's the message? Is there something in there that I really need to pay attention to? And the answer came, and I don't know if you experienced this, but sometimes, I don't know, it seemed like a true answer. The birds in the image sort of said to me, there is one thing that you've forgotten and that's really important. And that's that the berry is really delicious. <laughs> and it was just, I'd forgotten about the joy, like the joy and the deliciousness of life. Like I feel so committed to causes and changing the world to some extent and whatever. And what's really important and what I need to pay attention to at the moment, particularly when things are so messed up, yeah. is finding the joy and yeah. the deliciousness in life. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, that's something I'm interested to hear. Is how that you said that was in February that you mm. started to have that thought. Have mm. you noticed some shifts in yourself since then? So we had the retreat and then we've got this little series of workshops that some of the people on the retreat are participating in. So there's 10 people. We've designed this workshop with a few different tools and the young, there's during the workshop a whole bunch of millennials, essentially, mostly people in their 20s. It's two 18-year-olds and then variety up to 30, but primarily in their 20s. And part of the program requires that they do 
an activity. We did call it a project, but that sounded too big and fancy. So we're like, just do a thing in your community that's related to spiritual ecology, whatever that means to you, interpret it however you want. So I'm getting to spend time with these younger people. They're, you know, half my age. And it's amazing. They have so much joy in those young people and they're just doing stuff. Like, and really for them, I think there isn't really a separation between spiritual life and everyday life. Whereas for me, I think, and maybe our generation, we've had to try and bring those two things together in a way. For them, there's just no separation, which is inspiring and joyful. They just go and do their things. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting. My own particular spiritual journey, if you like, started off being quite Christian Pentecostal Mm -hmm. upbringing, then uh, not, then kind of almost going the opposite and being more about kind of business and doing things in the world. But in both of those cases, yeah, it was very separate. Like my spirituality was like, it was almost like it was a requirement to be separate from the rest of the world. And then business world was almost a requirement to be separate from the spiritual world as mm-hmm. well. And then the past few years has been bringing together those two things. Like I found a different kind of spirituality and it's starting to manifest in the way that I think about my work. And that's a really interesting reflection that you're noticing that in a different generation is almost being like the way that they are. Yeah. Years ago, one of these series trips overseas, we went to India and I was taking a small group to India and we went to visit Vandana Shiva. Do you know her? No. She's a physicist and academic in India that's done a lot of work in promoting organics in the very anti-Monsanto. As a response to there's a lot of farmer suicides because they were having to buy seeds each year, going into debt, etc. So she's vocal supporter of organic farming. So took a group to visit her farm, which is called Navdanya, which I think means nine seeds. And she's so articulate, powerful, talks about feminism and ecosystems and brings everything together. And I had what I thought was this really good question. And she manages to talk about scientific facts and the sacred in one breath. And so my question for her was, how do you manage to bring these two things together, science and the sacred? And she just went... They're not separate. It's <laughs> just like, oh, I've been stabbed <laughs> with the truth into yeah. the stomach. I was like, oh, yeah, it's stupid me. <laughs> but she's right, and it's taken me quite a few years to kind of, I don't know, maybe work that out for yeah. myself. And even still, I forget all the time. Yeah. But, yeah, that separation, this and that, I think that's what we need to move beyond, I guess. Mm. Yeah. When I think about that, I think about my very urban life and the spaces that I occupy and like to Dutch dirt like I am now (laughs) is not a common thing in my life. I'm wearing shoes. I'm on a material that separates me from the earth that's being made in a factory somewhere. I'm indoors. I'm in a car. I'm in, yeah. It's a beautiful thing happening as well. I don't know where that's coming from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... Yeah, that, I don't know, there is just a design separation in, in my life, I guess, in typical kind of urban life as well. And I'm wondering, does it need to be broken down to remove that separation or, or is that, am I kind of creating a different kind of dichotomy there as well? I think there is an external separation, but there's also an internal separation, I think. And I think we do it to ourselves. I'm trying to, struggling to explain, I just... Somebody said recently, as we're walking into dark times right now, the light needs to come from within. And I guess I'm looking for where that light is in me because I do feel like we're heading into dark times and I need to hold on to that light and it can't come from outside. And so something what you said then about the separation that you're seeing all around, it's, I guess is maybe it's just a paradox. Maybe there is... You're creating the separation in your mind. At the same time, I do believe there shouldn't be plastic everywhere, for example, and so I create that separation. But to some extent, I think we don't value plastic enough. It's Mm. the fossils of our ancestors, essentially. You know, all that oil comes from ancient, ancient, ancient ancestors from millennia ago that we're now digging up and we have for two seconds and then get rid of. Because if we really treated that plastic as sacred to some extent, we would treat it totally differently and it wouldn't be everywhere. So I feel like the healing 
needs to come from inside first. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, I really like that. Like, how do we start to heal ourselves in that way? Mm. And maybe we can think about that. Well, I think, like, going back to the vision statement of series, which is about falling in love with the earth again, I think the again bit's really important in that statement mm. because a remembering of something that we used to know is kind of a smaller and easier step than trying to think up a whole new thing that's going to save us or heal us or whatever. So I think in that question of how to heal is partly a remembering, a reconnecting rather than anything else. Yeah. Um, There's probably a couple of elements to that, right? Like I think as kids, it's pretty natural kind of aspect to who we are. And then there's obviously a generational part of that as well. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I also had a Christian upbringing. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I ever really believed it because people were saying that this is how God is and everybody else also has their gods but they're all wrong. And just as a child, I was like, that can't be right. I can understand that this is our way of talking about God and we're going to worship this God. This is our culture. These are our people and this is how we're going to show our devotion. Um, and those other people, they do it differently. Mm. But that's their way of showing devotion. I always thought that. And so for Christianity, in my experience of it, to keep saying we're the only ones with the answer and everybody else is so wrong that, you know, they're going to go to hell, essentially. It was just always wrong. Yeah. But then... In my own exploration, I then heard, heard Buddhists say there are many paths to the one truth. And so I thought, oh, the Buddhists, they're correct. They have the answer. Just hearing that statement was like, yes, there are many paths to the one truth. So in my university days, I experimented a little bit with Buddhism, mostly reading about it rather than actually doing it, which is probably not the way you do it. And then forgot all about everything and then found my own particular spiritual tradition in my late 20s, which was much more about love and the heart connection. For me, Buddhism was beautiful, but very empty in a way. And I just don't think it suited my personality. Yeah. I always felt a lot of emotion <laughs> and I think connection through love. And so, yeah, I found my way of doing it. I think your question was around children knowing, and I think I knew truth as a child, but yeah. get so caught up in how I'm supposed to be as an adult that I forget what I knew back then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was thinking a little bit about love as well and like what falling in love with the earth again kind of looks like and why the barrier might be there for people. Mm-hmm. And I'm just thinking about a couple of things there. One that like love can be scary, like it means a vulnerability and an openness and I guess an unknowing about what's going to happen as a result of that. It's like a letting go and... Perhaps there's a little bit of that. Like I think about falling in love with the earth again and I'm like, well, if I do, what might I have to change and give up? And I wonder how strong that kind of narrative or thought process is more generally. But don't you think if you were really in love, you know, you think about that time when you first fell in love and you're so crazy in love, that those things that you so-called give up don't really feel like a sacrifice. Not at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel amazing. Yeah. So, I don't know. It is a kind of altered state, though, I think, being really in love. It's mm. kind of ecstatic. Yeah. So, in that way, it has power. I think people these days often think about love as kind of cosy. But for me, love isn't like that. Like, love is, like you said, terrifying and utterly transformative. I don't really know of anything else that can transform an individual as much as love can. Mm. Like, I can see how I'm still questioning myself. How do I fall in love with the earth again? That seems quite a big, you know, how do you love the earth? But I guess I'm exploring it. Like, I don't have the answer. Yeah. I think everybody loves it in their own way as well. Mm. And for some people, I think in an urban environment as well, I don't know, I think about this, like a lot of people are not comfortable going out into the bush or into nature and probably me talking about falling in love with the earth again sounds horrendous (laughs) to a lot of people. (laughs) But I think, I don't know, for some people it starts with pets, like they see the wild nature of their pets or a lot of people with their children, Mm. you know, they have that remembering of that real love connection when they have their own children. 
Yeah. Um, I think there's all different ways to connect to the earth. Cooking, walking, you know, breathing, remembering to breathe, mm. gardening. Yeah. There's lots of simple ways. Yeah, there is. Have you seen people go through that kind of transition before? Have you got any stories about that kind of thing? People that have, you know, maybe come here for the first time and had a little bit of a moment or people have been a little bit resistive? Or... I don't get to see it that much myself, but we teach, like I said earlier, a lot of kids. And at a climate march a couple of years ago, we were flying this giant puppet of a kingfisher. So after about a decade of the first people being here on this place, the kingfisher used to nest along the banks of the creek, but with the pollution, nobody had seen a kingfisher for decades. And then our little education office here, one day a kingfisher flew into the window um, and the staff working there at the time were like, this is a miracle, the kingfisher has returned. And so they set up this amazing festival called the Return of the Sacred Kingfisher Festival. So they celebrated the return every year for many years and lots of kids were involved in that and this is kind of early 90s really and then a couple of years ago when I was flying that kingfisher puppet through the parade with thousands of people around so many adults came up to me and said we know the kingfisher we know the story of the kingfisher those people they cleaned up that place that used to be a tip they planted trees and the kingfisher returned Mm. and we've never forgotten that story yeah and I don't get to teach those kids, but I really experienced their, like, you could see it was with them. And I do get that a lot, sort of people in their early 20s contacting me, just saying, look, I had this really amazing experience at series when I was a kid on an excursion, and it's been with me my whole life. So mm-hmm. it's pretty, I feel quite emotional yeah. <laughs> thinking about that. Yeah. It's such a beautiful story. Mm. And, I mean, the kingfish is such a beautiful bird as well. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I heard that. I heard that story told when I was here last a few months ago mm. as well. And it's like, yeah. And there's a, mm. there's a, like an annual celebration around that now as well. There is. is. Right? Well, we had there was a lot of funding for big celebrations like that kind of ten years ago, and it doesn't really exist in the same way anymore. So we're actually in a process of rethinking how we continue it. Mm. We do every year celebrate the Kingfisher, but it became it's quite a big performance and now we're sort of looking at it and going how can it be more of a deep ritual for people less performative and more co-created as well I think for people that are there yeah. we just had this conversation a couple of days ago with the original people that ran the festival yeah. and the people that are here now so we're trying to work out a way of taking it forward it's definitely not forgotten and it's just such a huge part of our story but I think culture evolves right you've got to change yeah. and so we're asking ourselves what's really needed at this time what are these people now mm. needing mm. and I think there's something about a deeper connection to each other and to a place through ritual and sharing um, rather than just people sort of dancing and waving puppets yeah mm. so yeah like when you say yeah what sort of ritual are you, and what sort of connection are you talking about there like what what is, and are you talking about people that are already connected to this place? Yeah, connected to the place or connected to people. Not already connected. I think ritual brings connection. So you could be somebody that doesn't know this place and you'd want to turn up and be welcomed. I think what I hear a lot is a desire to process grief, um, particularly from environmental activists or even just everyday people. I heard a kid walking past my house two days ago talking to his mum on the way to school going and the whales are going extinct and the koalas and just listing all of these things and he was about seven and I was like the weight on those kids today knowing all of that stuff that's going on around them and I think the only antidote to that is connection to each other we have to support each other through this And so it's as much about connecting the people as it is connecting to place. We often would have a fire ritual. So our winter solstice festival is very popular and we usually have a big bonfire and some sort of ritual around that. Yeah. Simple and accessible. So I wouldn't want people to think, oh, it's some sort of weird hippie festival that I don't (laughs) want to be involved with. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think ritual is really important, but I think we need new rituals for this time that we're in. So I don't know how you balance that. Ancient rituals and new rituals, I think it's 
We're mm. just working it out. Yeah. Having a go doesn't always work. I <laughs> <laughs> just want to paint a bit of a picture of context and where we are at right now. Because I guess, you know, people might listen to this in months and years to come, but we've just had a federal election. Mm. Been like an upset, I suppose, of what all the polls were saying. And it seems to be a bit of a rejection of, in a way, of policy for the future as opposed to policy for now, in a way, like protecting what people feel like they have now. But I don't know if all people feel that way as well. Like people might think that it's actually a, they voted for the future, but in, with a different mindset. I guess, you know, I just want to talk about that a little bit because, I don't know, globally, right, there's been three big upsets, I suppose we could say. Upsets because they weren't predicted. And for me, it seems to indicate that there's a level of listening that's not happening and that there's something there that maybe people aren't, there's a, there's a big group of people that aren't feeling heard and, and something's not, and their needs aren't being spoken to in a... Um, well, they are by one group is, is, is speaking to those needs, I suppose, or those fears or whatever it might be. Yeah, I just wanted to paint that context as well and just think about, if we can, think about that a little bit and particularly in your role here too. Mm. I guess it would be something that you might think about a bit, but there's, there's a group of people that perhaps feel like that they aren't being heard and that some of these messages are very foreign to them. And um, is, is that part of what you do, trying to reach out in that way? Maybe not consciously, or, or yes, I think I do try and do that, um, but I'm still working out how I go about that. When I went to the march yesterday, one of the chants was ScoMo has got to go, and I was like, really? Like, it's just so far beyond that for me. Like, I just, it's not about Scott Morrison or even about his government. For me, like, yes, it was an upset, and I cried on the election morning, but the Labor Party didn't really have solutions either. Mm. So, and what we've got now is what we already have. Yeah. So maybe people are more afraid of change in this time of great fear than anything else. And at series, we're lucky because we're not beholden to the political parties because we're mostly self-funded. So mm. the government change doesn't affect our funding yeah. so we can carry on doing what we're doing. Yeah. But I do think we're in a bit of a bubble here at Ceres. We're in like the most left-leaning electorate in the entire country. Okay. And so I think I was surprised that's how the election went. Even though I know I live in a bubble and I try and remind myself of that, it became really obvious that people are blaming Queensland for the outcome of this election and other people are saying they're going to move to New Zealand because of the values that Jacinda Ardern is demonstrating that align with them. Mm. And my friend, he went on a rant on Facebook saying, all these people saying they're going to move to New Zealand, you know, they should not be saying that. They should be saying they're going to move to Queensland and have conversations mm. with people. We need to be bringing together these two what appear to be different ends of the spectrum but what we're trying to do at Ceres is, and what I try and do, is values-based communication. And I did this work with an organisation called Common Cause. Have you heard of them? No, I haven't. So they base their work on some research that was done, I think, in the 1960s, where this organisation went around to every country in the world, all different kinds of communities, and about what their essential human values were to try and understand the concept of universal human values. And they came up with 67 or something like that and they mapped them all. And they say that everyone has all of these values. And they work together in different ways. So we have values which they call them extrinsic fear-based values, things like power, security. We're all motivated by these so-called values but we also have other values which are more intrinsic, so um, benevolence for nature, care for each other. We need to remember that we all have all of these and that by activating values that are grouped together, you're more likely to have other values or other actions that are related to those values. The other piece of that research was that 75% of people think that they themselves operate in the, the good intrinsic values but they think that 75% of everybody else operates motivated by power and security and all these other values. Yeah. So the lesson is that we all have those 
things, but maybe it's about language and how we talk to those different values, like conservative voters versus more progressive voters. We both have these values around care, compassion. And so I think through my work here as a communicator, I'm trying to work out how we communicate compassionately all of the time and not fall into that, what I think is a trap of how the media usually talks to us, which is through power and those insecurity. But at the moment, there's a climate emergency. And I'm actually, I've been struggling with that um, that wording as well. Like, it's a climate emergency. So people have approached me and said, Ceres needs to talk more loudly and more urgently about the climate emergency. We need to have signs up all over Ceres that say, where Ceres declares a climate emergency. And I... I agree that we are in a climate emergency, but I don't think yelling louder about that is going to make a difference. I think Ceres needs to continue to exist, exploring these new ways of being, connecting to people, showing compassion so that people have this kind of, I don't know, seed of hope for the future that they can hold in dark times. And for sure, we need to advocate for our politicians to change and I'm all about going to protest marches, we'll be taking the Kingfisher again for sure. But that's in the city in the faces of those people. I think on our park here it's quite precious and quite um, a needed source of resilience and peace for people. You need that. Yeah. And I think so in my messaging through series I'm always asking myself that question, how do I speak from a place of compassion for all? I don't know if that... You know, our, our target probably doesn't reach north of Queensland, northern Queensland. <laughs> Maybe we should set up trips of <laughs> Queensland and WA or all of those. Yeah. Mm. There's certainly some pretty special areas in those parts of the world as well, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I don't know. Do you know Matt Wicking? No. He's, um, I've heard the name. He's a facilitator and uh, musician and uh, activist as well. But he did a performance recently that I went and looked at. And in that, he talks about his experience that he had going to the Daintree. And he, he came across, like, he had quite a, you know amazing experience there himself. But then he came across somebody else who'd been going to the Daintree and other parts around the world. And, yeah. oh, so moving. Like, he just, this guy, I don't know for how long, decades, I guess, he's been recording using the same equipment, on the same settings, setting the same place. And he might go there, I don't know if he goes there every year or every five years or something like that, but the same time of year that he goes there. And in this performance that Matt did, he took everyone through, he showed three different recordings of the Daintree over the past, I think the first one might have been like the late 90s and then the next one was like the mid uh, 2000 and zeros and the last one might have been like 2012 or something like that and the like the dramatic change in richness and diversity of noise and level of noise from wildlife was disturbing and how quickly it had gone down and so I don't know there are I guess there are well I guess what I'm saying is there's there are pockets around there uh, in all over the world, I imagine, and there's, a, there's a, also a bit of a theme of listening there as well, which I think is really special, and also about finding ways to communicate this kind of thing with compassion and with not thrusting it down people's throats, like allowing, like just the the recording in that kind of moment to speak for itself of like, oh wow, like this is the thing that's lost. What can I do? Mm. Yeah. I love what you just said about listening. It's been a... I'm a talker. I like to talk. <laughs> so it's been a skill that I've been trying to practice more, being really present and deep listening. I also have a tendency to get anxious, and I know that when I'm in an anxious place, I'm not really listening either. And I came across... So Emmanuel Vaughan Lee is a filmmaker, and he's the sort of... In a way, he's really driving this spiritual ecology work through his work in from California and branching out into London as well. So he has the Spiritual Ecology Fellowship that he runs. And he made a short film recently featuring an audio ecologist, which I didn't know was a thing. I don't know. Matt sounds just like 
that. Or maybe the person kind of, that met anyway. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so he went to, so Emmanuel made this virtual reality film um, in the quietest place, I think, in North America where the audio ecologist goes and you can see this. But it's only a short virtual reality film, but you get to see the forest and it, he says that he's noticed in the last few years the change in the sounds. And he also talks about what silence really means, which silence in nature is actually very loud. Mm. Yeah, it makes me feel really sad to think about that loss of yeah. diversity. And actually I think in the climate messaging like the Extinction Rebellion, they're now saying climate and ecological crisis, not just climate crisis. Mm. So I think people can understand that and visualise that more clearly. They lo- people love animals, <laughs> like everyone... That, you've never never met a person that doesn't love animals, really, or very rarely. Yeah. And seeing the loss of that intense biodiversity, I think, makes people really sad and want to act. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And you're right, Queensland's got so many, like the Great Barrier Reef, like mm. incredible places. Yeah. Mm. And Charles Eisenstein, you know, he wrote that book, uh, Climate Change, A New Story, recently, and he, someone asked him, what are the most urgent actions that we need to take because people are talking about reducing carbon emissions as the most important thing. And he says reducing carbon emissions is important, but the most important thing is preserving places like the Amazon, probably the Daintree, that are still pristine wilderness areas. We need to stop the destruction of those first, partly because of all of the intense biodiversity that's there that we don't even really know about yet. And partly because we don't even really know what it means to have an intact ecosystem yet. So we need to preserve those is the first action that we need to take. The second action was, I think, stopping, he says, poisoning, which is about industrial pollution. And the third action, I can't remember now, but the fourth action was stopping carbon emissions, which I think, no, I hadn't really heard anybody say that before about preserving ecosystems and this focus on carbon in some ways is a, um, it's not the source problem, like the the problem is deeper than just stopping carbon emissions. Yeah. He says it much more articulately than I do. (laughs) Mm. I've got one last question for you, but it kind of Mm. speaks to a little bit about, yeah, partly about well, something maybe he didn't talk about, but you've talked about is, you know, falling in love with the earth again, working on ourselves first. And there's something in that, in like preserving those ecosystems and thinking about how this place is being able to regenerate itself with a little bit of nurturing and attention. And in, if we are able to preserve some of those ecosystems, I think the planet's ability to regenerate itself might surprise mm. us if we're able to do some of those other things mm, as well. I agree. Yeah. yeah. And someone I heard said, um, nature is always optimistic, like life will find a way. Mm. And I, I do agree that we can preserve little patches that will really help regenerate things quite quickly. Yeah. If we're, I mean, even this creek was so polluted. I saw those photographs of 30 years ago from before the Mary Creek Management Committee came here. It was just, it was hideous. Yeah. Right. And now 30 years and we've got these tall eucalypts around Birds, the kingfisher. There's yeah. been platypus seen here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I think, but the inner transformation, I think, is tricky in climate change times because people are talking about personal responsibility and you're not going to save the planet by recycling, for instance. But I think individuals do make a difference, but not in those ways so much. Like, I think maybe those ways are where it starts for individuals being conscious of how they are consuming or how they're interacting with the world. But mm just hearing the original people along the Mary Creek Management Committee, there was advocacy, hard work, like getting in people's ears, making a noise and causing like not so much of a subtle disruption, more of a really <laughs> obvious disruption. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that is where, well, that is really powerful. They are just a small group of people, but they got people's attention because it was important. Um, and I think that's where individual actions make a difference. Like there is that, it does start with the individual in that way. But it doesn't end there. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, it ties back to the two birds on the branch, right? Yeah. <laughs> I love those two birds. Yeah. And when I first heard it, I was like, wow, it's so simple. I don't really get it. Yeah. Why are people talking about this so much? And then it just keeps coming to me. 
Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a lot more in it. It'll probably keep coming to me for a while, I think. Mm. Still exploring it. I don't really know what spiritual ecology is yet to some degree. Like I'm just, yeah. it evolves my understanding of it. Yeah. Mm. My last question is shifting gears a little bit, but thinking about yourself and back to the theme or the name of this podcast being Subtle Disruptors and thinking about a small change that you've made in your own life or a small thing that you do on an ongoing basis that has a disproportionately important or significant consequence? Is there something that comes to mind? i ask you that. It's really funny. On the way in to meet you today, a guy that I didn't recognise was running past on the street and he's like, Sita! And then I recognised him and he actually applied for a job here about a year ago and he had research series and seen just my bio on the website and all I said was basically, you know, I'm passionate about spiritual ecology, something like that, simple. And it had obviously caught his attention and he applied for the job but then he rang me and pulled out of the job because he'd recently been in a car accident and it would taken him a year and he wasn't yet fully physically recovered and didn't think he was suitable for the job. But he said, can we have a coffee? Because I really want to talk to you about this spiritual ecology stuff. And so we had a coffee. Um, I gave him a book with those essays and then never really saw him again until this morning. Mm. Um, and he was like, it's been so amazing. Like, can I keep the book? Can I pass it on to other people? It's been maybe a year since I've seen him. And he's now running, like, whereas physically before he wasn't able to do all of that stuff. And... I think your question about, I don't even really know what I do. All I said was the words on my bio on our website, hidden away somewhere. And it really resonated for this person. And I can see how the ripples go out and how he's talking to other people about it. And even just hearing those words, um, I think people really connect with it. Mm. And I can see how he has reflected on his own life. He's actually about to go spend time uh, in a boat on the Caribbean for the next three months and really connect with the ecosystem there. So I don't know, like, I don't think I really know what I do, but that was a really nice affirmation this morning that what I do does matter in some ways. Yeah. See, it's been so good to have this chat with you. I've really enjoyed it. So, yeah, thanks for taking the time and sharing so openly as well. Thank you. I hope it made sense. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks for asking such good questions. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.